0: Hello and welcome all to the inaugural episode of the revamped super jump podcast a podcast where we discuss various gaming phenomena my name is reza and i'm joined by tushin and our guest host ben both contributors to the super jump magazine hey all hey everyone over the coming months we'll be experimenting with a new format where we create monthly companion episodes that are intended to deep dive into the art and science of video games we're super excited to see where this goes and have some great conversations along the way with a lot of the contributors at the Super Jump magazine. For this episode, our focus is going to be on streaming, a topic that's filled the news over the last few weeks after Google decided to shut down Stadia, its cloud gaming service. Stadia was a platform that allowed individuals to play any game on the service entirely through the cloud. Additionally, you could also play the games on any platform fundamentally, your PC, your uh, TV, if you had a Chromecast, and even through your phone. This was a really interesting idea for a ton of folks, right? Compared to the idea of purchasing a PC or a console, both of which are going to rack you several hundreds of dollars, the barrier to entry here is fundamentally lower. It had a lot of promise, and I think a lot of people were excited. Tristan and Ben, you guys were both relatively early adopters to the platform. Can you guys tell listeners maybe like what drove you to give the platform a go and what your thoughts were whenever it came out? Uh, Yeah, I think I'll jump in
1: first there. For me personally, I normally take a while, look at the situation, give something three or four years time. Like I didn't join the Game of Thrones bandwagon until after the fifth season. (laughs) But this time I thought, you know what, I'm embedded into the Google kind of review. So I've got access to the calendar, I've got one of their phones. Etc. Etc. So I thought this time, even though I knew at the back of my head, I felt like it was going to inevitably collapse, and that's maybe reputationally with Google Lens and other experiments of the past. I wanted to, I don't know, be brave this time, give it a go because it had the potential to be a game changer. I wouldn't have to shell out say five hundred pounds for a new PlayStation or keep upgrading screens and buying games in there. I could just do everything through stadia and the potential was great and that is more or less in a nutshell why i chose to be an early adopter
2: i think on my side there were two main reasons raza you and i are both in tech outside of <laughs> this so i just wanted to try the coolest thing i was all in I got the Founder's Edition, which is like $150. It came in a nice little box, which I really like. Maybe you can now. sell it now, Tristan, for yeah. $500 when it's memorabilia. Yeah, it's an antique item. And then the second thing was I was also doing kind of a controller's analysis across all the different consoles. And I just want to see what Google could come out with because they were coming out with a different type of controller. So, yeah, those are the two main reasons. One want to try the tech. This was when the Nvidia streaming was the only other big thing that gamers can use and then the yeah. second thing was just trying to understand how Google approaches ergonomics and if it's a good controller, it has bluetooth so I can use it anywhere else that I want.
0: Yeah, definitely. I would say a lot of those reasons were definitely pretty compelling. I'm curious Ben, before Stadia, did you try gaming streaming ever? I know there were like A couple of very old options that experimented with this which never really took off but did you ever try before or was this your first time
1: this is my first time properly streaming games online in that format i played online on the ps3 ps4 dabbled in the odd pc game but this was the first time I was going to try it in that kind of format. It was also on a side note, the first time I had a Chromecast as well. So I thought that was quite cool. So it was something I could use in addition to that. Started like streaming Netflix and stuff, which was really a great addition. But obviously the main traction was the games. And Mm -hmm. yes, my first way of trying it. Um, As Tristan was saying, I also got the founder's edition with the cool box. And all the bells and whistles <laughs> on top. I also got two free editions later on in kind of Google's lifespan where it felt a bit more desperate and desperate. So I've ended up with three yep. versions of the console.
0: Oh my God. I hopped on the bandwagon when they also did that free thing, Ben, that that you're talking about. I think they, they just started giving out uh, free HD Chromecasts and controllers if you were like a YouTube premium member or if you like, had some esoteric requirement, like you use Google Maps five times a month or something like that. <laughs> they literally would just send you an email being like, congrats, you can get a free Comcast and a free Google Stadia controller. And I was like, okay, I mean, there's no harm in giving this a go. Um, but I didn't actually try any game on it for a while because of the fact that you had to pay full price for the game still. And so I was like, if I'm going to buy a game, why on earth would I spend the money on this like cloud platform that realistically it isn't going to perform as well as just playing it on my PS5 or anything like that. And so I only tried my first Stadia game years later when there was like, or not years later, months later, when there was another game called Humankind that came out. Were you guys put off by the full prices for the games at all? Or were you just like,
2: yeah, this makes sense? So the first game that I played was actually Destiny 2 because... I believe it was free for Stadia Pro members. And for listeners, Stadia Pro, you pay a premium membership that will give you like one or two free games a month. And it gives you discounts to other games on the platform that you can buy. I was already playing Destiny 2 pretty heavily, and I was like, this is great. I can play. I honestly tried playing it from my MacBook at work in the office. Um, <laughs> Cause I was like, Hey, you can pick it up. Destiny 2 also is a very large game. It's a hundred gigs, or at least it was at that time. So it tends to be a very kind of like sit down and play it in your gaming computer type of game. So that was an alluring thing for me. And then that didn't work because the latency was too high and playing a multiplayer yeah. shooter over Stadia just didn't work out. And then I never bought anything else. Cause my options were, I have all the consoles already. Why would I spend $60 to buy it on this platform that feels like a subpar experience versus playing it on my computer, playing it in my living room? So to answer your question, I bought zero games. I've only tried the free games that they gave me because I had the pro subscription.
1: Destiny 2 was one of the very early games. And yeah, being an early adopter, got early access. I found there wasn't that many people playing it. So it felt empty a lot of the time. So it didn't draw me in as much. And then I remember buying Stadia, the Founders Edition, and then it kind of got left on the shelf for 6 to 12 months. And then they started filling in some of the blanks behind the scenes. And the biggest draw to pull me back in, other than tipping my foot in, was Resident Evil 8 Village. I believe that's the right number. And I did pay full price for that. And that's where I got one of my free consoles, because I didn't have a PS5 or decent enough PC to play it. And I didn't Mm -hmm. want to justify buying a new console just to get that game. Although I'm a massive Resident Evil convert, I did think about it, but I thought my wife might kill me at the time. (laughs) Was this also when it was hard to get a PS5? Yeah, I don't know what it was like for you guys in America and Canada, but over here, it's only just the last few months where you can get easy access to one.
0: I think it's the same everywhere. It is, yeah. Tristan and I got a little bit lucky and were able to get pre-orders, but it was honest and miraculous. I only got mine because of Tristan. But yeah, I think that was definitely like an alluring thing for me as well. Like some of the games that I did try out, it was because it couldn't run on anything that I had. The one that comes to mind for me was a game called Humankind, which is a it's a four X game, very similar to Civilization. And all I had at the time was like a dingy old, like I don't know, six year old laptop that was not made to play games on, and then my MacBook. I couldn't run it on either of those. And so I tried it on Stadia, and performance was just really abysmal for me. Like, I couldn't even get this non-difficult game where latency didn't even matter. It functioned really well. Ben, I'm curious. So in your article, very very original article about this, you titled it, Google Stadia Meets Its Inevitable End. Why did you think it was inevitable? Did you Why did you think it was bound to end up in this current state? I think reputationally, Google has that inbuilt kind of reputation
1: of starting a lot of projects and then just cancelling them a couple of years later. So that was always the first thought I had. And only one of my other friends had just stayed here as well. Similar chats we had of, oh, how long is this going to last? Is this going to be permanent? And I think within the first at least six months, they got rid of their kind of game studio or at least within the first year. And that was a real sign that it was going to go down those failed projects route. And unfortunately that feeling stuck with me. It was nice. You had little mm-hmm. jumps of excitement, such as when you had newer games like resident evil, and I thought, okay, maybe I don't need to buy a PS five as quickly, or maybe even long, long-term this could replace the need for that. I wouldn't have to have so many consoles. sounds very privileged saying that i don't need to have so many consoles but yeah it would have been nice to condense things down to one or two like just have the switch and then have stadia and stadia could bring me all those AAA games but
0: unfortunately that wasn't the case and i'm not surprised i don't think many people are really yeah i think despite the fact that google went all in that reputation of them starting and shutting down projects is definitely it's definitely one that a lot of people know about and i saw folks online say they held
2: off on getting stadia because of that reputation. I actually wanted to dig on Google a little bit because I feel like the sequencing of how they rolled out Cydia was not correct. As Ben mentioned, they released the thing. Then there were like news of publishers and devs being pulled in exclusive games, things like that, which came like way too late. I remember yeah. the they, uh, they got the exec from Naughty Dog to join. Amy Henning, who worked on Uncharted, I believe created a studio just to make a game for the stadia like an exclusive game forget the details this might be fake news so please validate but (laughs) not that it matters at this point Um, (laughs) but i feel like all these things should have been done before If you look at other console launches when nintendo releases a console microsoft sony the most important thing is your release lineup right yep like n64 had super mario 64 GameCube had Super Mario Sunshine. I'm Nintendo biased, so that's all I can remember. But like Stadia dropped dropped, and there was Destiny 2. Or I think Samurai Warriors was the other one. There wasn't (laughs) much like incentive for players to jump into it. And like you just had to wait years and years to actually get good games, which they ended up all canceling.
0: Yeah, I'm actually really curious what's happening to a lot of these studios. Let me pull back and add some structure to this again. So I think the outcome, as Ben and Tristan and I have alluded to, Stadia is unfortunately being shut down and it's going to be shut down in early 2023 and there's a couple of things happening which are unexpected and also open questions. So from the customer perspective, Stadia is actually giving full refunds for everything. So all hardware purchases and all game purchases that were done for Stadia are being fully refunded to all people. Personally, Obviously, this is like relatively pro-consumer, I would say. I I can get a refund for the crappy running game that I tried five times. Ben interesting. you guys can get your $150 back. (laughs) But it is really unexpected to me. Did y'all expect this at all? I thought we would just be crap out of luck and not get anything. No, from my side,
1: it's a nice benefit. But as much as they've said, are we refunding kind of the money that you've put into it? I still have at the back of my head, is this going to end up turning into store credit? Are we going to have an option when, say, the email comes through, you can have your refund for $200 or pounds, whatever it is, or you can have an extra 50 if you choose to use it as store credit and see what the kind of final user outcome is on that front. But it is a nice benefit at the end, but does feel like it was all part
2: of an experiment beforehand and you're being paid for your time. Yeah, I was not expecting them to refund everything. That is why. I don't think I've seen any tech company do something like that so it's a pleasant surprise
0: yeah i'm what i'm really curious about whether is whether long term this will be standard practice for any of the other platforms that are closing down potentially because i think we'll talk about this later but there are a couple of other competitors that are trying out similar things and this is naturally just a very difficult space right technically both the challenge of streaming games is hard the industry overall is very established And so I'm curious whether future people that shut down are going to do anything like this. I'll be shocked if they do, because Google has the capital to be able to pull something like this off. But I think a lot of consumers might get screwed down the road, Mm -hmm. essentially, if any platforms shut down and they just lose access to these games for $10 in credit or something.
2: Yeah, that's what happened with Ouya, right? They just shut it down and you didn't get any of your money back. You're stuck with this like bricked console, basically. Oh my god! I forgot about Ouya. There's this really great video on YouTube that just documents the entire
0: debacle of Ouya. They hyped it up and everything, and the games were just utter crap. It was a horrible <laughs> launch. It's literally just like mobile games. I think it was, I think the YouTuber who made the video is a guy named Crowbat. So if anyone wants to watch it, it's actually hilarious. But yeah, I was not very optimistic about the outcome for customers in, in this industry. So it was a nice surprise, I would say.
1: Overall, it was a nice surprise. I'm not going to say no to that kind of extra credit, but yeah, I don't know if it makes up for the time invested, the games Mm -hmm. purchased, because I've got three or four games now that I've needed to buy again on either Steam or another platform. Or I was halfway through, am I going to realistically finish these by the January deadline? I don't know. And it just feels a little bit empty overall, but it's a nice consolation prize, is what i would say.
2: Are you able to transfer your save files? Or is that per so. game? Because I know Destiny let you transfer your progress over between platforms.
1: That's a very good question. I've assumed it hasn't, and maybe I skim read the kind of email from them, but I'm going to assume you're not able to, unless I'm proven otherwise in the next few minutes. <laughs> Are you I'm, like, frantically it? typing
2: <laughs> <save> yeah, file <laughs> Stadia, it looks like it's per game. So like, there's an article about Cyberpunk 2077. And CD Projekt Red said, your save file won't be retrieved. And all your progress is lost forever. That's the word for word that they used. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wait, but didn't they just launch cross-platform
0: saves? I guess they probably just excluded Stadia from that. Yeah, they announced cross-platform saves for Cyberpunk. But I'm assuming Stadia development was just not happening. Yeah, And so they probably just didn't roll out that update to Stadia, which sucks for those people. I think save files are one thing. Uh, whole games are like a whole other thing, which I think is like a good transition to the next part. As we mentioned, Stadia went ham at first to get a bunch of studios and developers on board with their platform. And there weren't too many, I would say. Like, I think there was a small number of games that were Stadia only. There was about like 14 different games, but that was currently, I think that there was studios that were dedicated to making Stadia only games with like relatively well-known people behind it. We have no idea what's happening to the games that those people were building. They had exclusivity contracts with Stadia. And so now that Stadia is just not going to exist, no one really knows whether they are going to be exempt from those exclusivity contracts, whether they can continue developing for another platform, which I just think is like a pretty big shame.
2: Yeah, I feel like this is the worst part of about this whole situation, because Mm -hmm. these are not like play studios, right? They didn't hire nintendo's epd to to build a game for them it, these tend to be small to mid-sized studios and if they were dependent on releasing this one game and that just got they pulled the plug on that i am like concerned about basically the job well-being and studios are probably gonna have to shut down because yeah, of this. yeah um, totally. to the second part where he asked about like other consoles look at the whole mixer situation it's a really weird analogy but hear me out like when microsoft mixer shut down the streaming service i believe the streamers who had exclusivity contracts were able to just go wherever they wanted so some moved to twitch some moved to youtube i feel like this would be similar if the platform itself is completely gone then they should be able to release their game anywhere else i guess the question is around intellectual property
0: and whether google owns the ip behind those games or whether the studios own the ip behind the game because i think in mixer the different thing is there's no like content created that is IP'd, right? Like it's just a person creating content. Whereas here, there is like an actual IP behind the thing. But I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. What the hell do I know? I think the IP is owned by the studio. I would hope so. The unfortunate thing is devs actually don't know either. So I found this tweet from one of the developers and he literally was like, after Google announced that they were shutting down Stadia, they still hadn't contacted any of the studios to give them an update about what's going with their games, what's going on with their deals, or anything like that. At least this is on the original tweet thread. So I'm hoping they get an update by now, because this was like literally a month ago. But I, a lot of devs were unclear about what's going to happen to their games afterwards, which is pretty unfortunate. Yeah. I
1: think it's um I think I saw that tweet as well, kind of um shared out what's gonna happen next. And Masters and losers, kind of job security and kind of what they're going to do next. Are they able to release it somewhere else? Do they all now need to look for a new employment. You hope not. You hope they've developed a game. And I just imagine how frustrating you'd be if you were 95% way through the journey and then someone just goes, yeah, all your work, you can't use it yeah. again. And it's gone. Like you've got a feel for them. And I personally, for me, I'd like to hope Google would have contacted them first. I know they haven't, but that would have been the... Nicer thing to do, I would
0: argue, but hey, it is what it is at this point, I'm afraid. <laughs> I think the like closure of Stadia just wasn't handled that well from a logistics perspective. Um, it seems
2: to be a common theme throughout this discussion. <laughs> this whole logistics and scheduling seems to be messed up everywhere. I'm almost so confused about Google Stadia in the sense that I
0: can't remember whether Amazon had launched Luna before or after Stadia came out, but... It always felt like Google was one of the first non-video gaming companies to just jump into the space and think they could uh, beat everyone else because of the fact that they're such a behemoth outside of the industry. And it almost feels like they got a slap on the wrist <laughs> and a reality <laughs> check about how difficult this space is, both technically and from an industry perspective. Like gamers are fickle people. And yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting test, like case study of what happens in, in instances like this.
2: Yeah, I think Luna came after Stadia. So like Amazon decided to jump in after Google jumped in. But I agree with you. Google just botched this so badly. I feel like the fundamental issue with Stadia was the user base, right? And like they just couldn't find the right fit. I remember I had a tweet thread right when Stadia came out. And I think the use case is even present in this recording where you have all the consoles, you have all the games, you're mm-hmm. never going to buy Stadia. You don't have the consoles. You want the game, but it's a bad experience. So you're not going to buy it on stage. And then you don't have the console. You want the game. It's an okay experience. Sure, maybe it'll pick it up and now it's going away. So there, there is no scenario where any gamer, doesn't matter if you're a casual, hardcore, competitive, would want to buy their game here. I feel like from a product point of view, they just did not think that through properly. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, like, when
0: you're starting off with something like this, the main thing you need is exclusivity, right? They got screwed because Destiny 2 and all these other games were already on other platforms. And so they tried exclusivity, but exactly as you said, Tristan, none of these games were here at launch. And so what was the incentive for me to get on this platform and try it out? The other thing I think is, like, I don't know about you guys but my actual experience of streaming games was crap it just didn't work that well i think like the biggest advantage to something like this set that, that you can really tout is accessibility and convenience right like you just mm-hmm. fundamentally don't have to worry about i don't know if you're a pc gamer you don't have to worry about drivers or anything like that you can just plug in your chromecast and it works and the price is ridiculously cheaper compared to any console and so you have those advantages but the experience has to be exactly the same or relatively close to the experience of playing games on a console otherwise you're going to have like it's just not fun. My experience is crap. I don't know. It was it everything just looked relatively pixelated all the time and it was very laggy. What was it for you for you guys? I'm also curious about Ben cuz you were an international user so I'm curious what oh. whether that impacted you as well.
1: It was very inconsistent so which if you want something obviously that's come out and available on pretty much any device anywhere anyhow you want a fairly close experience but Playing on the laptop for me over in the UK was far superior to playing on my TV where I'd spend about, say, 10, 15 minutes plugging in the Chromecast, plugging it out then loading up the game. Then it might boot you out or it might let you in. And (sighs) I felt like I was doing like a (laughs) test run of it all going, okay, between seven and eight, it's not great. If I do it between nine and 10... (laughs) And it's not that 21st century way of just flicking something on and going, that ease of use, that user experience being front and center. Mm -hmm. So when it worked well, it works well. And playing Resident Evil on the TV was a great experience, but a lot of the other games, when I first started trying it on my laptop, it was a little bit laborious. And after a while, I just didn't go back to that way of doing it. It just never seemed to work well. And once you've got a
0: bad taste in your mouth, you move on. Yeah. I think that was at a really good point, Ben. It not only was the experience of streaming games bad, but the actual like way of accessing them a lot of the times, like if you're on PCU, it's relatively fine. You just go to the website, you like tap on a game. If you wanted to play on your phone, this is where it got like really convoluted because Apple didn't want to allow cloud streaming apps onto their app store. And so even though there was a Stadia app on the iPhone. If you wanted to stream a Stadia game on the iPhone, you had to open it up in your web browser uh, <laughs> in that app, and then play Stadia through the web browser. And the actual like Stadia app was just a selector for doing stuff on your computer or for download or adding more games to your library. And so I think we'll talk about this more later because there are some interesting dynamics here around Apple and Google and Uh, competitiveness and stuff like that. But it just felt uncomfortable and weird. That's not really the way that I would think of starting a game. I just want to open the app, tap a button and play the game. Even with the Chromecast, right? Like, I think the main one that was around when Stadia came out was the Chromecast Ultra. And both of the OG Chromecast and the Chromecast Ultra, they didn't have a remote or anything with it. You just plugged it into the TV and then you used your phone to control everything. I think for people that are completely new So that paradigm, it's just less intuitive than like having a controller, turning on the TV and then picking the game that you want. So I don't know. I think from the get go, the whole experience of actually doing this was not
2: was just not that great. Going back to user base, you're not going to buy your grandma a Stadia, right? Like you you give your grandma a Nintendo Wii because there are games there. It's easy to set up. But like, imagine giving your grandma like a Chromecast Ultra Stadia controller. You got to set all these things up. No, I agree. It's not. It's not intuitive for people that are like not. I remember
0: getting my parents a Chromecast and my parents are not the most tax-heavy people in the world. And so it did not go very well, <laughs> like... It worked okay, but they would just get confused
1: sometimes. I just think, yeah, yeah it's a good point about the family kind of window pane test there. You saying grandma, I wouldn't even yeah, get my kind of mum to try and use it. Just trying <laughs> to select the phone for her is difficult enough. And the Chromecast takes like a few seconds to get going, to like get the kind of image in the background and then get used to seeing that symbol in the corner of YouTube or anything you want to kind of flick and stream onto the TV. So... Yeah, I think I'm going on a bit of a tangent here. When I was looking on Twitter and some of the Google Stadia articles I put out there or any threads I looked at, it felt a lot of families with younger children ended up gravitating towards Stadia because a lot of those games were not aimed at adults and they were the ones defending the console a lot more. And again, this is anecdotally, just looking over a, a few threads, but, and then the user base Um, my age range about 34 they were the ones that are just like no it's got no hope it's going to fail some (laughs) of them were a little more less polite in their
0: language shall we say but that was a general (laughs) sentiment that came along yeah I feel like in general the takeaway is I couldn't tell who the what audience Google was actually going for right both from a library perspective from an experience perspective it felt like they were just let's just build this thing and maybe people will use, I don't know. It seems strange <laughs> to me, There's still a lot of upfront infe- investment for not a lot of clarity around like who exactly they were going after, which is unfortunate because I think like there is a ton of promise with the fundamentals here. It just wasn't executed
2: very well. It feels very tech driven because if you yeah. think about it, the fundamental technology of being able to push out like video streaming, interactive video streaming, right? Because video games require input as well. -hmm. Across the globe, in quote unquote low latency, is a pretty cool tech, right? So I feel like they they were thinking about the tech and then they snapped a product on top afterwards.
0: Yeah, I just can't tell what other use case there. Like, nothing else requires low latency input like this. So I'm just like, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe this is why I don't work at Google, but I just can't tell what drove a lot of this. I was just gonna say, I think that ties into kind of feeling that you were just
1: part of an experiment as you alluded yep. to you throw lots together and hope if you throw enough against the wall, you hope something sticks and it didn't <laughs> stick for Google. Cause it felt like there was no strategy. There was no bigger vision. There was no, we're going to be here for 10 years. Let's try and get a hundred thousand people adopted in the first year. Then move up to the next milestone maybe test it on one country at a time, make it like a cool thing to get people involved in, like how they launched Google Plus. I remember that was invite only at the start and could have come across as something cool like that. Bring people in, as you allude to, have a library of games that targets a certain age demographic and then launch out. They could have had a children's version as well, tiers of it, but yeah, it just felt like a lot was just
0: thrown together quickly. I think experiment honestly sums it up really well. Like they had an interesting tech they wanted to try it out, but I feel like from an experience perspective it just never really pulled through. So I I think this is a good place to summarize a lot of the general thoughts that I feel like we had around Stadia before we chat about what else is out there. I think you know, overall interesting idea, execution wasn't the best didn't lose out terribly. They got a full refund, and they they don't, we really, it's basically back to the status quo, both financially and <laughs> It's <laughs> like it never <laughs> happened. Exactly. It literally is it never happened. I think the biggest loss, as Tristan called out, is the loss, potentially, of a bunch of exclusive games and studios and developers that put a lot of work into building this out, which is unfortunate. I do hope that this isn't necessarily some it, I feel like it left a bad taste in a bunch of people's mouth around streaming in general, but there's a lot of other options out there if people are interested in kind of testing this out. And there's a lot of different models out there for how this approach to gaming could really be modified over the years. And so I think we wanted to review some of those and then share some of our thoughts on which ones are actually the best for consumers and the implication of, of a lot of those different things. Um, so, I think when we think about how people could be approaching gaming streaming in the future, there's really two main vectors to analyze it, right? I think the first question is do you own the hardware or are you renting the hardware? And then the other thing is do you own the game or are you renting the game? And so when you use that, there really is about four different categories of approaches that could be taken when it comes to gaming, str- to, to game streaming. The first one that comes to mind, obviously, is this like very rigid one around one where you own the hardware and you also own the game. I think the general format here is that there is a primary hardware that's actually, you know, computing the game and doing all the stuff that a PC or whatever would be doing. And you own this, like you, you are not renting it out. You're just, you're the primary owner for this and you're streaming it from some other device. So I think the things that come to mind for me here are things like PS Remote Play or like Steam Remote. The biggest takeaway for me here is it's not meant to be the primary way that you engage with games. It really just seems like a way to make accessing these things a little bit more portable, but it's never intended to be something that replaces the primary way of approaching some of these games. It's a convenience thing. I don't know, what are y'all's thoughts
2: on this? Would you ever, do you guys even use this stuff regularly or ever i used to use this with my ps4 and my vita Mm. i would play destiny one on my ps4 and i would like want to go to the bathroom and i would just like i'm just being (laughs) honest like i would just continue to play on my vita in the bathroom was it not
0: seamless if you were in the middle of playing a game on your ps4 because you just pick up your vita
2: and right away be streaming yeah because like it it used the network the wi-fi network so if both hardware needs to be on the same Wi-Fi and it just structs gotcha. it over that. So the latency wasn't that bad. Game played well, but I totally agree it's a convenience thing. Like I, I didn't use it yeah. as my primary method of consuming games. I used PS remote play a few times. During the pandemic,
0: we had one TV in the house, but it was me and my roommate. So if I wanted to play something, I would literally just be in my room playing on my PS PS5 through the remote play. Well, he would be using the TV to do whatever he wanted to do. Just a nice convenience factor, but it also isn't like a game changer. Like you're still in the house; you're not exactly leaving it. And they recommend that you use it on the same Wi-Fi. Like you're not supposed to be out in the middle of nowhere using 3G to stream a PS5 game. But it just not—it's not like a game changer for me. Ben, have you? tried this out.
1: Yeah. I assume tried in the PS remote play. I'm not sure as was an idea as Tristan was, but I've dabbled in it and I think as you alluded to, also it's it's convenience. It's not a groundbreaking jump where you could potentially say leave your PS5 on power saving but it's still on in the background at home and then you're in the middle of, say, Australia just catching up on an hour of gaming for
0: bed or something it's nice to have but it's not going to revolutionize my life that much i think like the biggest takeaway here is like it's a plus one to the current approach to gaming
2: it's never going to be like a replacement for it because it doesn't make sense and the um like the barrier to entry for this option is so high because you need to own multiple pieces of hardware even steam remote i believe you need like a physical thing to hook up your to your TV, right? Like you can't just yeah, if you wanted to play it on your TV, yeah,
0: you have to have a Steam link or something. Theoretically, you can stream from your computer to another computer. For some reason, my PC is always recommending I stream my Steam deck anytime my Steam deck is on, but I don't really see the use case for that very often either. When we think about the benefits of gaming streaming, one of the biggest ones that come up is accessibility. And this doesn't really change that at all. It's not modifying that. You're doing the same thing you were doing before. You just have a little bit of convenience added to it.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's early days of this technology and say in 10, 15 years time, it might be the go-to option of what we do. We just have one device or one controller that will allow us to access all these things, but it feels like there needs to be a
0: few more failures before we can get to that stage. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think it's like a middle ground almost to what the most optimistic approach of this would be, which we'll talk about later around where you don't own anything. When you control the hardware and you control the Wi-Fi device that you're using, or if you make it strong enough to handle mobile networks, it actually could be like a pretty interesting approach to, I don't know, playing like God of War on my PS5 while I'm on my phone somewhere else. I think the next item that we wanted to talk through was one where you own the hardware, but you don't necessarily own the game. I think the general format here, this one's a little bit of a wonky one, in my opinion. I don't know if there's too many that kind of come to mind when I think of this, but the main thing that comes to mind is something like like PS Now or what used to be PS Now. The idea is that you need to have access to the hardware to play the game, but you're not really owning the game behind the streaming platform. What's weird here is if you are streaming the game and you don't own the game, generally it's going to be like we hope for it to be platform agnostic right like i'd hope to stream it anywhere but in these instances like ps now you have to have a ps4 or a ps5 to play these like older ps2 ps3 games on i think nintendo has another similar thing where if you subscribe to their online offering then they give you access to a bunch of old games that you can stream i i don't know if this is like a great experience in my opinion i don't know what are y'all's thoughts
2: i think Even between the two examples that you gave, they're slightly different because PS Now is more of a Netflix style, right? Like you you buy the subscription, they give you a bunch of games, it rotates in and out. It's also like Game Pass. Game Pass is like much broader than that now. Whereas Nintendo's is like a little plus add-on for buying their online subscription. But to be honest, I, I don't see maybe outside of Game Pass a lot of places following this model there's not much value from either side i feel exactly the upfront cost of buying the hardware is the biggest thing that holds people back a lot of the
0: times and so if i have to spend that much money on the hardware unless it's a library of games exactly as you mentioned tristan they're like why yeah. on earth would i prefer to buy the cloud version yeah as opposed to just playing it on the hardware. Yeah, so oh, um, I'm
2: going to wait for God of War to to come into the rotation on PS Now. <laughs> I just spent $600 on my PS5. I'm going to wait three months to play just it on my PS Now. Yeah
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. I do think you bring up an interesting point here around the way that you actually purchase the game or the way that the options are laid out, right? Traditional gaming experience, you're buying pretty much every game right? And it's only a new phenomenon with Xbox Game Pass and now PS Plus expanding into it around this idea of you pay a monthly subscription and you just get access to like a whole library of games, right? Stadia took a more standard approach around you buy almost every game. They had an option for, you know, Stadia Premium, you get access to some stuff, but definitely wasn't the primary way that people were accessing games on Stadia. And so I do think there's another like lever that this paradigm of streaming games is likely going to interact with, which is around like whether or not you're actually buying the games or whether you're just buying access to a bunch of them at once, which is I think where it gets pretty damn interesting. Yeah, I think I'd agree with you guys. The need to buy the hardware to simply
1: access experiences seems unnecessary and undesirable, really. I feel as though if I'm buying something like PS Now, Nintendo Plus, I know it's not called that, but I couldn't think of what it was. I should be able to do that anywhere rather than going, oh, I need to buy a Switch to connect to all these classics, whereas I would probably just use an emulator for that instead. So, so yeah, nice to have, but
0: not going to change my mind. Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. I think the next one is also, is a pretty interesting one as well that I'm not necessarily against at all. So I think this one, this is a, a platform where you don't own the hardware that's actually running the game, but you do own the underlying game itself. I think the there, there's a small offering of, of platforms that currently that are currently doing this and it's mainly for customers that want better hardware to support games that they already own. For example, Steam and Epic Games and all that kind of stuff. They offer a massive library of games. But I used to have a, a really old dinghy laptop that that could barely run Minecraft or anything even. Yeah, it couldn't run anything. And the idea here is you're effectively renting out or purchasing a remote PC and you can access your own games on that PC. And so you're still owning the games in the sense that you've bought them on platform and they're your games, but the actual hardware that's running the games is somewhere entirely else. The main one that comes to mind for me here is around GeForce Now. I don't know if they've rebranded or changed since, since I did my research, but GeForce Now is one option. There's a couple of other ones that kind of do something similar, but it seemed to mainly be in the PC realm. If I'm correct. Uh, Tristan, Beth, have you guys? ever experimented with this i'm not a massive pc gamer so my steam library isn't as big as tristan's
2: at least have i tried geforce now or any other platform that kind of does this no because i've never been able to get in because when geforce now when i was looking into it they were like closed beta and i signed up multiple times i try to get access and i never got it that's the issue that i ran into that i ran into and the other thing is i don't really play games that require huge graphical processing on my computer because i usually play league of legends so i don't think i really thought about utilizing this i think i think they've opened it up for people now like
0: when i go on their website now it just says join now and they have three different tiers. They actually have a free tier, which is interesting, but your session length can only be one hour long. So that's not exactly the most fun, but the real options are like $30 a month to a hundred dollars a month for six months. If you, what's it called? Actually, no, it's $30 for six months or it's a hundred dollars for six months as well for the two different tiers. And those give you access to um, higher quality PCs that have 30 thirty eighties with like longer session lengths. Better resolution, better FPS. It just seems strange to me because I feel like if you have a monitor that's 4K and supports 120, why on earth would you not have a PC that kind of works? <laughs> 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 like, what is a use case for me to own that monitor but not the PC that's using? I don't know. It seems
2: I'm, I don't I, know who's actually using. It might make sense in this current hardware constrained market, right? I guess crypto is all crashing, so GPUs will be available again. But if you can't find a GPU, and you just have your monitor it might be a good option to utilize this in the interim right as we're talking about this i remembered one more thing this almost feels like a very asian uh cultural thing so like in asia there's a lot of internet cafes that have top of the line gaming pcs right oh interesting. and usually they have games installed but you can also just play your own games there Mm-hmm. This feels like a very in-home analogy of that, right? You don't own the craziest PC. You're fine just buying the games and you're basically like borrowing the hardware to play it. I, I know a lot of Asian, at least in Korea, that's like a big cultural thing. You go to the internet cafe together with your friends that play the games.
0: No, that's an interesting comparison. I think the like the thing that makes this paradigm the most interesting for me is that you can transition from a state where you don't own the hardware and you own the game to one where you own the hardware and you own the game. And the experience is like the same to you, right? Like if I have mm-hmm. a bunch of like my steam library is massive, but I don't own a PC that can run it. I have an amazing 4k 120 PS monitor <laughs> for the time being, I'm like using the service and all of my save files are there. My games are my own on the steam library. If down the road, I want to purchase my own hardware and, and just run it locally. Then I'll just smoothly transition to that, right? There's nothing really stopping me from doing that. And so the only platform where this I could see this like potentially working is the PC one. Uh, it seems like a weird idea for, I don't know, Sony or somewhere else to navigate to this. Could be really interesting, right? Like maybe if Sony and Xbox were to allow you to just stream on your PC or your phone. And then if down the road you wanna buy an Xbox, which I guess you can do with Game Pass, down the road, if you wanna buy a, like a PlayStation 5 then it'll just transfer your saves and all the games that you've purchased on there. It's like, oh, I'm saving for a PS5. So for the time being, I'll just do, but I don't know if those companies would not move into that direction anytime soon. I don't think Mm -hmm. there's interest in that from the industry.
2: And I'm, wait, no, I was going to say something, but then I changed my mind. Because console makers lose money on their hardware. I was going to say they would be incentivized not to do it because they need to sell the hardware. But I think they lose money on their hardware. They make money off their software. I remember when they were selling PS4s and PS5s, Sony were posting a loss on their console. I think they're close to losing, but I don't know if they
0: actually like it. Totally, I think the, the only person that can answer this is probably Sony, right? I'd be really <laughs> shocked if it was like a very large loss. Like I could imagine maybe like a loss of $5 or a buck or something. I don't know. I don't work in the supply chain. But it does add an interesting angle to it, right? If you could just eliminate that loss altogether and let people run a God of War over the cloud on, and just pay like a monthly subscription to PS Plus. I think the biggest thing holding people back from doing something like this is really just the infrastructure, right? It, it is hard to do the input output uh, streaming. It's just a hard technical challenge. I'm really curious how NVIDIA is actually pulling it off, because I think generally reviews of GeForce Now and stuff like that are pretty good. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if there's any additional benefits to just the fact that like you're running it on a PC, especially with the limited hardware of a PS5 or an Xbox. I've not tried GeForce Now myself, but I do have a couple of
1: friends who have great reviews about it, think games I wouldn't normally have access to. I think listening to the argument, so it seems, yeah, very much I personally would use it as a short-term gap before going to something else, but I would gravitate more towards the Steam Deck for this kind of experience to... Or if I wanted to play a different game on a different PC, I've got access to that Steam library, and I think it would be, I'd be hard-pressed to pry myself
0: away from that infrastructure to switch to the e Now example. I think the most progressive option is one where you don't own either the hardware or the game itself. And this is something that like I think Stadia was attempting to do, right? You only really would want something where it's one subscription that kind of bundles everything. And you're basically just like paying for the very low cost to enter that game and play it on any platform. The things that kind of come to mind to me here are Game Pass X Cloud, which is like an addition to Game Pass, where you can access the entire Game Pass library, but you're playing it through the cloud. You can still download these games on your PC, which is why there's like a middle ground to me. The other one that Tristan's kind of brought up is Amazon's offering around Luna. Luna takes an interesting approach where you're subscribed to channels and these channels can be things like Ubisoft or something like that, where you're basically just like studio locked and you get access to a list of games under that channel, but you're still playing these games over over streaming. So you don't own any of the games itself. You're just getting access to, to some platform of, of games. I think. There's a couple of reasons in my mind why this is the most progressive, but I'll Tristan, Ben, would you guys agree that this is probably the most progressive one, the one that's like the furthest out and, and or like, what are y'all's thoughts? I think that would be the automatic one that I would jump on.
1: Very similar to Netflix, Amazon as well. You're streaming it, but you don't own anything. It feels very much like what the world's moving towards. Also saves space in your house. You can easily click and go. You don't have the kind of worry of, oh, I've still got my GameCube, for example, and I've got some of the games on that. I love that console. But every time I play it, I feel like, should I save it? And because the hardware is eventually going to break, and I won't be able to use the games anymore. Plus the inputs, obviously you probably get conversed in the future. that will be able to pair it up, but it may look stretched or wouldn't be remembered as well. However... If I can convert all these or have access to all these in a 999, dollars 20 or whatever it is, I would happily jump on that because I'm so conditioned with Netflix, Disney,
0: whatever it is of paying that and just being able to stream things. Yeah, I would totally agree with all those benefits, right? I think this is the one that is fundamentally the most convenient, right? You don't have to worry about paying the upfront cost for either the game or the hardware. Right now, if I want to play God of War, I got to pay $400 for the console and then another $70 for the game. I think like in an ideal world, what any consumer would want is like you just pay a quick cost for the actual hardware and then you just have access to a bunch of different games that that you can try out. I think the biggest potential loss here is exactly the point that you brought up, Ben, around like ownership. Like you don't own any of these games. But I guess the question here is, is that okay? because of the fact that there's lower barrier to entry and access. in Obviously, for watching movies and stuff, we've generally moved away from a world where we own uh, movies, TV shows. We're all very comfortable with the fact that we're just accessing it and not where we don't own any of that. But I feel like for gamers, there still seems to be this pull around, I own, this is mine, it can't be taken away. And I don't know if that's going to change or if the general population of people that might be gamers are going to be more receptive to not owning games down the road.
2: That's what I was going to bring up of like, we brought up the grandma example, right? I feel like having a great option in the don't own either situation will actually open up gaming to a bigger mass of people. Because because the barrier to entry has become, it's not zero, zero, but very low. So I think this would be the best thing if we want to keep growing the industry.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Do you think that there is a loss in the fact that there might be a world where you can't, where most people are not owning any of these games? Like, I know you're all about gaming preservation, Tristan. Yeah. Um, do you think that in a world where everything is subscription-based and you also don't own the hardware, mm-hmm. that are you okay with the fact that that likely will come at the cost of preservation and things like that?
2: I think there, there are already digital-only games that need to be preserved, so I, I'm not really worried too much about that. In terms of, you mentioned of oh, I need to own the game. Even movies and TV shows, they still release like collector's editions, right? Like release editions. I don't think any of that stuff is going to go away. It's like a big moneymaker for the developers and publishers. And also there's always going to be demand for it. So I I think the industry will even itself out and figure out the right way to, to everything. Yeah, yeah. I think the industry is also incentivized
0: to move in this direction, right? Because when you reduce the barrier of entry, you get access to that long tail of people that are spending less money as an individual unit, but the total money that you're making is just significantly higher than like what it currently is right now, which is insane because the video gaming industry is already really massive. So I think that's why we're seeing a lot of people try to move in this direction. The biggest question is fundamentally going to be around experience, right? If Is it actually as convenient and does it run as well as it would on mobile hardware? Right now, it just doesn't run as well for most people, right? Like Internet access isn't always guaranteed, especially fast internet access is not a guarantee in a lot of areas. And so the idea that like someone in the Midwest who's running off of, I don't know, still Broadway, I remember I was in this house in Denver that had one megabits a second. There was no way I was going (laughs) to be streaming Destiny 2 on, on internet like that. And so I think there's a lot of barriers to entry here to actually like get it established because the infrastructure costs are massive, not only on the industry and the companies, but just other adjacent industries that i don't see happening anytime soon yeah i think that raises a very good point about barriers to access
1: and i remember reading just in the uk where there are some areas that you can't get broadband and it's yeah average maybe two meg or so and trying to struggle to stream these things i doubt many people would give up their kind of console and discs for that for at least five ten years before Everything catches up to where it is in the bigger cities. I live in London, got a decent internet on my doorstep, but my mum has about a 10% of that speed at home.
0: So it's hopeless playing anything that's not pre-installed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think there will be some sort of middle ground, right? Which I think is honestly what Xbox does currently to some degree with Game Pass around a, a platform where you can still download and play these games locally if you need to, if that's what you want, but it's also an option for you to stream and just play it however you want. I guess the question that in my mind is, if that's the paradigm, then will more people lean towards one where you download it locally and play, or will more people lean towards the latter one? And I think all of that is dependent on whether or not you actually want to put down the money for the hardware, or if in general, people are just not going to have the hardware to actually play some of these games. Definitely an interesting time in the industry, like who's going to move towards what,
1: how long does it take before we enact our dreams, for example. Again, I would love a world where... Everyone has similar quality internet. You can stream stuff. You can have experiences together. You can just pick up and play in terms of video games. But I know deep down, realistically, at the moment, we're at the kind of hardware download stuff to take with you rather than
0: being able to stream everything with a touch of a button. So I think in general, we've tapped into a lot of the pros and cons of a world in which we move towards a streaming first approach to gaming, right? I think one of the biggest things that come to mind is barrier to entry and accessibility, right? If we fundamentally reduce the cost of being able to play a lot of games, a lot more people can potentially be playing games. You don't have to worry about paying $500 for a console if you could just run it on your laptop or on your phone or something like that. At the same time, I do think there's like potential losses to consumers in terms of less people actually owning games, potential costs to preservation. And Just generally giving these platforms more control, and which I think is something that gamers should keep in mind as we move into this world. Overall, though, like I think it's a really, it's a net benefit for us, and it's a net benefit for people that that companies are working on this. And I'm pretty excited to see where it goes. Thanks for joining us, everyone. As we said, this was the very first episode of the revamped Super Jump podcast. We're going to be releasing monthly episodes following this. Tune in next month, whenever we release our
2: next one. You can find Super Jump Podcast on Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and all your favorite podcast directories. Also, check out all of our written content at superjumpmagazine.com. Thanks again for listening. This is Reza, joined by Tristan and our guest for today, Ben.
0: See you, folks. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye.